Well, it's all been leading to this. If you're new with us, we've been going verse by verse through Mark's gospel. And as one theologian puts it, Mark is essentially a passion narrative with a long introduction. And so, today, after 13 chapters of an introduction, we arrive at the crux of the story. Today begins the passion, the suffering of the Christ. We come to Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11, if you have your Bibles with you. If not, the verses will be on the screen behind me. This is Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is God's word. There are three different parties around Jesus in our story today. And what is so striking about them is how each party places wildly different values on Jesus. Each party values him differently because each one sees him differently. And the three ways people view Jesus in this story are still extremely common today extremely common. Let's look at them together. Number one in your outline. One very common way people view Jesus is that he is an obstacle. Jesus as an obstacle. Look at verses one and two. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, where the people may riot. Now, you have never hated anything as much as the Jewish religious leaders hate Jesus. <laughs> they don't just want him to be quiet. 
They don't want him to just back off a little bit. They want him dead. That's what they want. But they have a problem. They've got a problem. Passover was one of the great pilgrimage feasts. So Jerusalem at this time that our story takes place had swelled dramatically to three to five times its normal size. Thousands of people were pouring into Jerusalem, coming from all throughout the countryside, and they were coming because of Passover. Now, Jesus had spent his entire ministry going about the countryside, preaching the good news, healing the sick. And so he had made a lot of friends. He was beloved by most people in the country. He was very famous and very loved. So, how can the religious leaders kill Jesus without causing a riot? Without themselves being killed by the crowds. The crowds love Jesus. And so this is what the religious leaders are trying to figure out at this time. How can we kill him and get away with it? <laughs> How can we kill him in such a way that they won't kill us for killing him? So that's what they're trying to figure out. Now, our society today has transitioned pretty dramatically over the years in its views of Christianity. Christianity used to be common and even celebrated in this country. Very much so. They used to teach the Bible in public school, right? It was very common. But around the middle of the past century, things started shifting to where many people began to become, eh, kind of indifferent to Christianity. You know, Christianity is kind of cool, kind of useful. You know, they kind of liked Jesus' morals. You know, those are okay. They liked his care for the poor. That's neat. But, you know, science is kind of taking over now, and philosophy is kind of taking over now. Education is kind of taking over in society. And so we just really don't need Christianity as much as we did before. So morals, cool. Ten Commandments, cool. Jesus, cool. But just not as important as it once was. And so what people started doing is just becoming pretty much just indifferent to Christianity. It, Christianity became something they could just ignore. But then, about 15 or so years ago, another shift took place. Christianity is now no longer something that can be ignored. You cannot be indifferent to it. Now it is something that must be faced head-on and eradicated from society. Christianity is now seen as an obstacle to progress in this country. People now don't, don't want Jesus to be quiet. They want him dead. They want him dead. People today have the exact same problems with Jesus as the religious leaders in our story. You see, Jesus' claim to divinity and kingship threatens them. It threatens them. They don't want Jesus to be king. They want to be king. They want to call the shots. They want to rewrite the commandments. They want to captain the ship. And Jesus is standing in their way. Jesus is sitting in their seat. And he must be removed at all costs. That is where we are today. 
Now, when I was an atheist, this is exactly how I viewed Jesus. Jesus was an enemy of progress. He was an enemy of progress. I saw him as an obstacle to my kingship. He was sitting in my seat. So that's number one, Jesus as an obstacle. There's a second group in our story who sees Jesus a little differently. Number two in your outline, they see Jesus as a means to an end. Jesus as a means to an end. Let's look at verses 10 through 11. 10 through 11. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. What we see here in Judas' betrayal of Jesus is one of the most appalling and heartbreaking acts we can imagine. Verse 10 is explicit that Judas is one of the twelve. He's one of Jesus' chosen. He's one of Jesus' closest friends. Judas is a really good church boy. Judas is a deacon. Judas plays guitar on the worship team. Judas leads a Sunday school class. Judas is seen as a great leader in Jesus' movement. So, how could this have happened? How could this happen? How could someone like Judas, a great little church boy, how could he betray Jesus? Well, it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Today, thousands of church people and church leaders around the world are betraying Jesus in a similar fashion. And why are they doing that? Because they see Jesus as a means to an end. They're not worshiping Jesus. They're using Jesus to get what they want. They're using him to ease their guilty conscience. Or they're using him to get to heaven so they can see Mimo and Peepaw again. They're just using him as a ticket out of here. Or they're using him in order to feel superior to all those sinners out there. Those dirty, rotten sinners. They're using Jesus to get what they want out of life. They're checking all the religious boxes so that then Jesus owes them. He owes them a good life. He owes them their dreams. I checked all the boxes, Jesus. Now you owe me. I came to church. I put the money in the plate. I smiled and waved at my neighbor. Now you owe me. You owe me. But as soon as things don't go their way, as soon as Jesus doesn't provide what they want, as soon as he doesn't make their dreams come true, they discard him like a piece of trash. They deconstruct from their faith. That's this popular word and popular among podcasts nowadays to deconstruct. As soon as Jesus doesn't meet my needs, he's gone. Jesus is only worth to them what he can give them, what he can provide them. And that's all. Now, 
we know that Jesus, Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was the minimum price in that culture that you had to pay to purchase a slave. So the lowest price you could pay for a slave was 30 pieces of silver. You could not pay less than that. That was the minimum requirement to purchase a slave. In other words, according to Judas, Jesus' entire life was worth the lowest possible price. The lowest possible price. What we see here in Judas is what we see in all of us. It's what we see in all of us. You see, you and I, we tend to view the entire world instrumentally. What do I mean? Well, we view everyone and everything as a means to an end. That includes church. That includes Jesus. That includes anything and everything. And we do these little evaluations of people and things. You see, people and things are valuable to us only so far as they meet our needs and make us happy. People, things, places, they're only valuable if they meet our needs and make us happy. Why do you think the divorce rate is so high in America? We say, darling, I will love you forever. Well, that is, um, unless you stop making me happy. Unless you stop meeting my needs, and then I'm going to have to discard you and trade you in for someone who will. <laughs> now, that is essentially what many of us are saying to Jesus, saying the same thing. I will love you forever, Lord, as long as you meet my needs and make me happy. As long as you make my dreams come true. I had a good friend of mine years ago. He, he developed terminal cancer in his mid-20s. And of course, this agnostic fellow immediately sought out the church for help. Hadn't been to church in his whole life. But the first call he made after his diagnosis was to a pastor in town. It was the pastor of my church at the time. And he'd been going to our church for a few months, checking things out, and I took him out to lunch. And he told me that his condition was getting worse. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, Dustin, what good is Jesus if he doesn't heal my cancer? What good is Jesus? You see, my friend was only using Jesus as a means to his end. He was only using him to heal his cancer as a way to meet his needs and make him happy. Now, scholars have several theories as to why Judas betrayed Jesus for such a measly amount of money. The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us why. But a common thought among scholars is that because Judas was a fantastical nationalist, a fantastical nationalist. He saw in Jesus the one person who could make his dreams of national glory for Israel come true. 
he thought Jesus was a revolutionary for Israel. And so he was waiting for Jesus to take the throne of Jerusalem. That's what he was anticipating. But now that he's heard Jesus talk so much about his own suffering and about going to the cross, well, Judas sees now that Jesus is, in fact, not the one to make his dreams come true. And so in frustration, he goes ahead and gets out of Jesus what he still can before Jesus goes to the cross and then Judas gets nothing from him. Now, we tend to shudder at Judas. But let us look in the mirror for just a second. What do we see in the mirror? Covetousness, jealousy, ambition, a dominant desire to have our own way of things. I know that's what I see when I look in the mirror. Are we so very different from Judas? These are the things which made Judas betray Jesus, and these are the things which still make men betray him. You know, after atheism kind of left me in the gutter, when I first returned to church, this is how I viewed Jesus. He was just a means of getting me out of the gutter. He was just a means to get me back on my feet, get me back on the right path. So I went in my own personal life from view number one in our story straight to view number two, straight to just using Jesus for my own ends. And those are two very common views today. But there's one other person in our story who views him very differently. Number three in your outline, Jesus as a treasure. Jesus as a treasure. Let's look at verses three through nine. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In stark contrast to the religious leaders and Judas, 
is this unnamed woman. They are the very definition of insiders. And she is the very definition of an outsider. We don't even know her name. And Judas is sitting at the table calculating what Jesus is worth to him. And this woman has also done the same calculation. And she's arrived at a much different number than Judas did. Scholars have pointed out that verse 3 in the Greek is worded pretty oddly. It's kind of jumbled together. And they say, the reason they say it's odd is because there are so many adjectives thrown into verse 3 in the Greek to describe the ointment this woman brought. To describe the ointment. There's all kind of adjectives there. A lot of them are taken out in our English Bible. But and if you look at the Greek, there's a lot of adjectives to describe this ointment. And Mark is doing that on purpose. He's doing that on purpose. The purpose for this, for Mark, is he wants to emphasize the tremendous value of this woman's gift. That's why he throws all these adjectives in. You see, nard was a very, very rare and very valuable perfume. In fact, you could only get it in one part of the world. And the text says that this jar of nard was worth a year's wages. Historians point out that a perfume of this quality is contained in an alabaster vessel, which is itself very beautiful and very expensive. The alabaster jar was a sealed flask in order to keep the contents from spilling or spoiling. So we have very expensive perfume in a very expensive jar. In other words... This is not the perfume you'd use if you were going out for a night on the town. Because this vessel was sealed shut, in order to access the contents of the jar, you had to break it open, which means that you could only open it once. Just once. And after you opened it, you had to use all of it. Therefore, you would only reserve it for the absolute most momentous occasion in your life. An item like this, you don't just run down to the store and pick it up. This woman did not get this alabaster jar on Amazon. In all likelihood, This bottle of nard was a family heirloom passed down from generation to generation. Which, of course, only increased its value to the woman. This had very likely been in her family for a long time. This is an object of deep monetary value 
and deep sentimental value. And so while Judas sits back and contemplates what he can get from Jesus, this woman sits back and contemplates what she can give to Jesus. Judas thinks to himself, hmm, I wonder what the Pharisees will give me for Jesus. And this woman thinks to herself, hmm, I wonder what I could give to Jesus to show him what he's worth to me. Oh, I know. I know. I'll give him my alabaster jar. Folks, this is the kind of gift that impoverishes the giver. This is a life-altering sacrifice from this woman. And of course, her gift angered the dignified men in the room that day. Of course it did. They said it was wasteful. They said it was reckless. But what did Jesus say it was? In verse 6, Jesus says, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. The men thought that this woman was reckless and irrational when in fact she's the only rational person in the room. She's the only person with any sense in the room that day. Therefore, not only is her gift perfectly rational to pour everything she had out on Jesus, it's also beautiful. It's a beautiful act of worship. So beautiful, in fact, Jesus says right here in our text, that wherever the gospel is preached, her story will be told. I wonder what it would be like to give Jesus such an extravagant act of worship that thousands of years later, people around the world are still talking about it. And of course, we're proving Jesus to be an accurate prophet here this morning, aren't we? Because we're preaching the gospel this morning, and what else are we doing? We're telling this woman's story. Jesus is a pretty accurate prophet, you know. <laughs> pretty accurate. Well, now, of course, the question is, why? Why would this woman give such an extravagant sacrifice? Well, it's because somehow she knew what no one else knew. We don't know how. We don't know why, but somehow she knew it. Look at verse 8. Somehow she knew. Verse 8. Jesus says, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Somehow she knew who Jesus was and where he was headed. 
The disciples didn't know. None of the dignified men in this room knew it. Even though he had explicitly told them (laughs) multiple times, they still didn't know. But she knew. She knew who he was and where he was going. And you see, this story is the very beginning of Jesus' passion, of his journey to the cross. And would you like to know that throughout this entire passion narrative that we're going to look at over the next few weeks, this woman is the only person who treats Jesus like a king. She's the only one in the story who treats Jesus for who he really is. (laughs) She's the only one. And therefore, she's the only one who knows what he's truly worth. He's worth everything. He's worth everything. And because she sees what Jesus is worth, do you see how free she is? How much does she care that the men in the room are chastising her? She cares this much what they think about her. I care a lot about what people think about me, and maybe you do too. But this particular woman, she's a lot freer than me. She cares zilch for what others are saying about her. Why? she only cares about what Jesus thinks about her. That's all she cares about. And think about how free you would have to be to give up what is essentially your life savings in an instant. This is a life-altering sacrifice. She will not go back to her previous life. She is wasting everything on Jesus. And she's happy to do it. She's freer than me. And she's freer than you. (laughs) Much freer. She is not locked in the rat race of society. The mantra of our current society is get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can. And we are in bondage to that mantra. We've sold our souls for it. Every decision in our lives revolves around it. Getting all we can. We are slaves to that mantra. But not her. Not her. She's free. She's free. Why is she so free? Because she knows who Jesus really is. And she knows what he's really worth. And she knows if she has him, she has it all. (laughs) She has it all. She doesn't care what people think. She doesn't care about her stuff. She just cares about him. 
And so when my cancer-stricken friend asked me with tears in his eyes, what is Jesus worth if he doesn't heal me of cancer? I looked back at him with tears in my own eyes, and I said, my friend, he's worth everything. Jesus is the treasure. He's the treasure of all treasures, my friend. If you have him, then if you die today of cancer, then you've won. You've won. You have the only thing you need, my friend. One theologian puts it like this. He says, quote, You take everything that is. You take mountains and molehills, crickets and clowns. You take planets and suns and moons and stars. You take everything that sings, everything that brings delight, every form of beauty. And you put it all on one side of a scale. And then you put Jesus on the other side. And Christ outweighs them all. He outweighs them all. End quote. And now the question you might be asking is this. How can I see Jesus like that? Those are beautiful words. That's very poetic language. But I just don't quite get it. I just don't quite see Jesus like this woman saw him. So how can I see Jesus like that? How can I see him as the greatest treasure? How can I be as free as her? Well, you will begin to see Jesus as the greatest treasure when you begin to realize that you are his greatest treasure. And Jesus will show you exactly what you're worth to him at the end of this very chapter in Mark's gospel. He'll show you what you're worth. He won't just tell you what you're worth to him. He will show you what you're worth to him. The woman in our story poured her life savings. She poured it all out for Jesus. But Jesus is about to pour out his entire life, his blood for her, for you, and for me. Just as the alabaster jar was broken for Jesus, Jesus' body will be broken for you, for your sins and for mine. But why would Jesus do that? Why would he take the punishment for sin that we deserve? Because he's beautiful, infinitely beautiful. And that's what infinitely beautiful people do. That's what they do. 
You and I were stained with the ugliness of sin. And so, on the cross, the most beautiful person in the universe became horrifyingly ugly in order to make us gloriously beautiful forever. He traded beauty for ashes. We gave him the ashes of our lives. And he gave us the beauty of his life. Laying it down for us in our place. So, don't come to church and miss the reason we're here. Don't miss it. Don't miss the forest for all the trees, okay? My job as a pastor, I really only have one job, and that is to put forward the beauty of Jesus. That's my job. In all things, from behind the pulpit, in counseling, in one-on-one conversations over lunch, that's my job, is to put forward the beauty of Christ. Because the vision of his beauty will change you. It'll make you free. (laughs) It'll make you free as a bird. It'll make you free to fly and free to sing. But it is only that that will do it. There's not four tips for a healthy marriage I can give you. There's not three tips for a, a, a better walk with Christ that I can give you that'll help you. All those things will do is either make you frustrated or they'll make you Pharisees. That's it. It is only the, what scholars call the beautific vision of Jesus that will change you. That's my job. One theologian says it like this. He says, Christ is like a diamond. He has many sides and all of them are beautiful. All of them are beautiful. And so every Sunday, we gather together. We come here with our pains, with our regrets, with our sins, with our sorrows, and we come together as one to gaze in wonder at the beauty of our Jesus. That is what we're here to do. We're not here to check a religious box. We're here to gaze at our beautiful Savior. And so when I'm behind this pulpit and when we're up here singing these songs, what we're doing is we're holding out the diamond that is Christ and we're saying, behold, behold the Lamb. Come to take away the sin of the world.